Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. I'm Patty James with Dr. William Grant. We are chairs of the Nutrition, Food, and Wellness member-led forum, and I'm chair of tonight's program. You can learn more about upcoming programs and how to become a member at commonwealthclub.org. It is, I am now pleased to introduce Dr. Akil Palasanami. Akil Palasanami, MD, is a Harvard-trained physician who practices integrative medicine, blending his conventional medical expertise with holistic approaches, including functional medicine and Ayurveda. Dr. Akil attended Harvard University and graduated magna cum laude with a Bachelor of Arts in Biochemical Sciences. He earned an MD from the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, and completed family medicine residency training at Stanford University. He then graduated from a fellowship in, in with a from a fellowship in integrative medicine with Dr. Andrew Weil at the University of Arizona and received certification in mind-body medicine from the Georgetown University Center. Dr. Akil is the department chair for integrative medicine at the Sutter Health Institute for Health and Healing. A widely known speaker and educator, he is author of The Tiger Protocol, an integrative five-step program to treat and heal your autoimmunity, his latest book, and The Paleovedic Diet, a complete guide program to burn fat, increase energy, and reverse disease. Dr. Akil. Thank you so much, Patty. Okay. Okay, well, thank you so much to all of you for coming out on the Wednesday night for this, uh, for this talk. So um, I'm going to be talking about the TIGER protocol, and uh, here's an outline of tonight's uh, presentation. So in the first part, we're going to really look at the science. What are some of the, uh, the, the main findings from research about autoimmunity? And in the second part, it's going to be more about practical tips. So how do we implement the recommendations? And then we're going to do a Q&A and hopefully an experiential exercise and, a, uh, and have a discussion. So um, the, the TIGER protocol, so TIGER is an acronym, and it stands for these five root causes of immune dysfunction and inflammation. T is for toxins. I is infections of any type. G is gut health. E refers to eating and R is rest and uh, managing stress. So um, in my review of the literature, I found that these five drivers of inflammation um, spread across all different, you know, not only autoimmune diseases, but diabetes, obesity, heart disease. Um, we'll talk about some of the data behind that. So that's why I, I kind of put them all together. So I always like to start with a case. So this is a patient of mine who I saw who was a 40-year-old woman. She had uh, multiple kind of metabolic issues, uh, obesity, high blood pressure, insulin resistance, uh, metabolic syndrome, fatty liver, and also, so the autoimmune condition was psoriasis that she was dealing with. Um, so she was diagnosed with gestational diabetes and then uh, later on developed metabolic syndrome. And uh, then also showed signs of a fatty liver with abnormal liver blood tests. And then now, even daily use of topical steroids, which is the standard treatment for um, the psoriasis, was not really helping it at all. Um, 
and she didn't have any GI symptoms, but we always like to test the microbiome, uh, which is all the gut bacteria in anyone with autoimmunity. And we found that she had significant intestinal permeability, which we'll talk about more, uh, high levels of harmful bacteria like Pseudomonas, and low levels of the good bacteria, um, such as bifidobacteria, lactobacillus, and acromantia, and low levels of butyrate, which is one of the most important metabolites that the gut bacteria are supposed to uh, produce. So we'll come back to Maria, but first, uh, just some numbers. So uh, um, one in five Americans, depending on the study, suffers from some type of autoimmune condition, um, not only autoimmune diseases, but a lot of irritable bowel syndrome is understood to be autoimmune, so is fibromyalgia. And hundreds of millions of people worldwide are dealing with this now. And there's been a 300% increase in some autoimmune diseases just over the past 10 years. So clearly too rapid for genetic explanations because our genes evolve so slowly over millions of years. Um, but I think it's this perfect storm of factors that has come together in the past few decades to cause this epidemic. So we'll start with the discussion of toxins. And I um, put that first in the protocol because I think it's probably the most important under-recognized factor. And uh, globally, there's over 350,000 chemicals that are registered. And in the US, there are 42,000 that are in active use. And most of these are considered uh, innocent until proven guilty. And um, some of them, like a, a small number, have testing for acute toxicity, like what is the maximum dose to really uh, you know, hurt someone's health in an acute episode. But chronic low-level exposure is not something that's really studied because it's very expensive and hard to study. And so chronic low-level exposure to multiple toxins is kind of the norm for all of us. Um, because of these reasons. So drinking water is uh, a potential source of toxins. There was some data that found 45 of the states had perchlorate, which is an environmental pollutant in water. Um, PFAs, you might be hearing about in the news because uh, different articles are coming out about not only um, drinking water, but other, um, even certain vegetables uh, based on the water that was used to irrigate and you know, those vegetables might have uh, PFAs. And then um, more than 50 million Americans have groundwater potentially contaminated by agricultural chemicals. And also drinking water contains, uh, in some cases, pharmaceuticals that people might have flushed down the toilet, so antibiotics, um, even um, oral contraceptives, psychiatric medications. So um, just speaks to the importance of filtering your drinking water whenever possible. So this is from Dr. Douglas Kerr, who's an expert at Johns Hopkins on autoimmune disease. And I want to highlight the um, second paragraph where he says that most of the risk of autoimmunity comes from environmental exposures rather than from genetic susceptibilities. So that's why there's been such an explosion in the number and incidence of these cases because of all these um, environmental factors and toxins being one of the most uh, prominent. So in the TIGER protocol, I review 20 toxins that each individually have been linked to increased risk of autoimmune disease. But when you combine toxins, you actually cause a synergistic damage. 
And uh, there was a study which showed this. Again, these are newer studies because it's um, not part of our conventional thinking on acute toxicity of chemicals. But this study compared um, heavy metals and pesticides, two big categories of toxins. So when they were both present, they caused significantly higher cell damage than when one was present individually. So it just shows that these um, toxins do interact. And you might wonder uh, if that's relevant, how many toxins do we have anyway on average? So a study found about 100 or so um, toxins elevated per person, including a variety of these toxins that are linked to autoimmunity, like heavy metals, uh, industrial compounds, PCBs. And uh, of note, none of these um, American subjects had any kind of <clears throat> occupational exposure or residential. So they weren't uh, factory workers. They didn't live near a you know, toxic waste site. They uh, had no known kind of risk factors for exposure to toxins, uh, but still had pretty high levels in the body. Researchers also have studied babies. Um, so average of about 200 toxins in the uh, umbilical cord blood, which is a, uh, collected at birth. And, uh, and many of these are the ones that increase the risk of autoimmunity and uh, chronic inflammation. And I do think that's a big uh, factor in the rise of you know, asthma, allergies, uh, you know, even autism potentially. So in this study, uh, in this uh, slide, it's a little bit busy, but um, on the left are the different categories of toxins. And uh, as I was saying, you know, these impact not just autoimmune disease, but obesity. They're called um, obesogens. And then there are a class of toxins called diabetogens, which cause insulin resistance, glucose intolerance, um, high insulin, and fatty liver. And then um, we also have cardiovascular disruptors. So heart disease is still the number one killer of people, you know, worldwide and in the U.S. And toxins are being increasingly recognized to play a role in, in that as well. Um, and this is a simplified version of the same slide, just showing that our modern chronic disease epidemics, like the uh, obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and autoimmune disease, are um, being driven in part by this rapid rise in uh, toxins. So I want to acknowledge that the um, data might be overwhelming. And the goal here is not to live a toxin-free life, because none of us can live in a bubble and you know, have zero exposure to toxins. But that's not necessary. You know, the goal is to um, reduce exposure to toxins and enhance your intrinsic detox capacity, which your body has built in, and we'll, we'll talk about ways to, to do that. And in the literature, it's shown that this uh, process of healing toxins can actually contribute to remission. So there was a, a patient with rheumatoid arthritis who saw a complete resolution of symptoms after a year of chelation therapy, which is one of these um, holistic modalities, which removed high levels of cadmium, which is a heavy metal, from her system. And um, that was a, a you know, very striking case. Uh, another patient with multiple sclerosis was treated for years unsuccessfully with these very powerful immune-suppressing drugs, which is a standard of care, um, not really going into remission, but also was found to have elevated levels of heavy metals uh, in urine testing. 
And then he did um, oral chelation, which uh, led to improvement of his symptoms, and then finally uh, remission in his MS. So we'll move on now to the eye in terms of um, talking about infections. And uh, there's many different categories. There's bacteria, mycobacteria, viruses, fungi, and parasites. So mycobacteria are known for their thick cell walls, and the most famous mycobacteria is uh, TB, Mycobacterium tuberculosis. But there's other mycobacteria, like the MAP bacteria, Mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis, which um, seven studies show an association between the MAP infection and the development of uh, type 1 diabetes, which is a childhood autoimmune diabetes. And one of the mechanisms for all autoimmune diseases is this concept of molecular mimicry. So what that means is that the uh, antibodies produced by the immune system against those bacteria, the MAP bacteria, they cross-react with a um, protein found in the pancreas that secretes insulin. So basically, that protein on the beta cells is um, almost identical to those proteins and uh, proteins on the surface of those bacteria. So that's why this molecular mimicry occurs. And MAP bacteria often are found in cow's milk. Um, sometimes they can even survive pasteurization. So MAP contamination of milk might explain the correlation that is seen from nutrition research on uh, the link between childhood diabetes and um, cow's milk exposure. Mycobacteria also seem to play a role in uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, there's a study of Crohn's disease patients, which found that they were between two to seven times more likely to test positive for MAP. And one of the challenges with a lot of these you know, new uh, ideas is that it's hard to measure them. And it's uh, not an exception with the MAP bacteria. It's hard, they're hard to grow, they're hard to identify and stain. So a new staining method was used to um, assay this. And with that, they actually found 18 out of 18 um, Crohn's disease patients positive, and zero out of 15. So it was um, a pretty striking difference. And I think this is the, um, as we get more better methods and technologies, that'll shed more light on the, the role of infections. Another um, concept is called the mycobiome. So unlike microbiome, which is bacterial, mycobiome refers to the fungal species. So on average, there's about 200 to 250 different fungal species in the gut um, and in the body. And the one that's most well-known is candida. And uh, there, it is being investigated for its role in a few um, autoimmune conditions. So there was a study which showed that infection with three different species of candida was associated with higher odds of multiple sclerosis. Um, each of those three individually was linked. And then in Crohn's disease, <clears throat> it's also possible that candida, along with the bacterial imbalances, might be driving the uh, inflammation. Um, and then candida is also being examined for role in celiac disease because of possible molecular mimicry between gluten and a protein on the surface of the candida. So it's being actively studied in multiple autoimmune conditions, and I think the, um, that's why infections play such a, a big role. 
So we're going to go on to gut health and uh, start with discussing the microbiome. So these are the 40 trillion microbes from more than a thousand species that are in our gut. And we have about 40 trillion human cells, so we are 50% bacterial. And we have 23,000 human genes, whereas more than 1 million genes exist in the gut bacteria that can be expressed. 60 to 70% of our immune cells are located in the gut. And the concept of increased intestinal permeability, which is also known as leaky gut, uh, is a key factor. So the classic gut findings, there are three that are seen in across the board, different uh, multiple kinds of autoimmune diseases. One is a reduction in diversity. So diversity is one of the key metrics for health of the microbiome. And then when you start to see a drop, that's one of the early clues. Dysbiosis we'll cover in the next slide. And then increased intestinal permeability is the leaky gut syndrome, which we're going to be talking about as well. So in dysbiosis, on the left, we have a healthy, balanced gut microbiome where the beneficial bacteria are abundant, they outweigh the harmful bacteria and limit their overgrowth. And uh, on the right, you see dysbiosis, which is where you have those harmful bacteria overgrown and a decline in the beneficial bacteria. And the consequences of that are uh, listed here at, at the bottom. Oops. Um, so increased gut permeability, systemic inflammation, insulin resistance, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, fatty liver, um, IBS, and heart disease. So a lot of conditions have been linked to the dysbiosis as one of the earliest um, findings. And this is a study uh, showing the reduced amount of good bacteria in patients with autoimmune hepatitis, uh, AIH, which is an autoimmune liver disease. And uh, the, on the, at the bottom, you see the names of four bacteria, Bifidobacterium, Lactobacillus, E. coli, and Enterococcus. So the first two, Bifidobacterium and Lactobacillus, are considered to be beneficial species, keystone bacteria. And, uh, and then when you look at the, the bar graph, so going from blue to gray is actually the progression of the liver disease from healthy controls to those with normal liver function and cirrhosis or severe liver disease. So as the disease progresses, there's a, per, a decline in those beneficial bifidobacterium and lactobacillus, but no real change in the E. coli or enterococcus, which are not beneficial bacteria. And then also in the same paper, they looked at the, uh, the leaky gut, which did correlate as well with the severity of the disease. So on the left, um, healthy controls were lowest in a marker called plasma LPS or lipopolysaccharide, which is a way to measure intestinal permeability through a blood test. Um, it's mostly available in only research settings right now, but the very interesting uh, data on that. And then as the uh, autoimmune liver disease progresses, the LPS uh, gradually increases, uh, indicating more severe leaky gut until you have the highest levels um, in cirrhosis, which is the end stage of this autoimmune disease. So here's a visual of the, um, the leaky gut. So um, on, in the middle there, the, are, in green, are all the uh, cells, enterocytes, which line the intestine. And then on this side here is the uh, lumen or the inside of the intestine. And on the left side is the 
blood circulation. So what you see is that um, on the top there, you see a gap between two of those green cells, and that is the increased intestinal permeability. And what happens is um, things in the lumen, like microbes or toxins, get through into the bloodstream, into the circulation, and then they travel to distant organs, remote tissues, um, other um, you know, organs far away from the gut. And um, so in this paper, they mentioned that this microbial translocation can trigger an abnormal immune response, causing inflammation, tissue damage in extraintestinal uh, organs. So this is one of the ways that the leaky gut contributes to autoimmune disease and inflammation in distant organs from the gut. So we talk about these five causes as separate factors, but they are definitely linked and they interact. So phthalate, which is a toxin exposure, altered the microbiome composition in newborns and also the diversity of their microbiomes. And then glyphosate, the pesticide, actually was first brought to market as an antibiotic because it has uh, effects that are antibacterial in the microbiome. And um, again, with glyphosate, it's been, it's fairly safe in terms of acute toxicity. You need a pretty high dose, but no one is studying these chronic long-term effects on the microbiome with low doses. So my favorite topic, eating. Um, so in terms of some foods that are great to uh, incorporate at any time, broccoli sprouts are an excellent source of sulforaphane, which we'll talk about. And a trick is, uh, to increase the level in cooked cruciferous vegetables is add a source of this enzyme called myrosinase, which is used to synthesize the sulforaphane in the vegetables. And mustard seed powder, when added to broccoli, increased the bioavailability of sulforaphane by more than 400%. So just a simple kitchen hack to help boost the levels of the sulforaphane. And there are more than 2,000 research studies which have documented the benefit of this compound, reducing inflammation, boosting the immune system, supporting the brain, reducing oxidative stress, and also having antimicrobial activity. So a lot of um, great research, and um, broccoli sprouts are the, the best source of, of sulforaphane. So here's a picture of the microbiome. Um, so in um, blue is the um, uh, human cells, and then you see all the bacteria packed there on the left. And then in green, uh, does anyone know what that green layer is? Just shout, shout it out if you uh, have an idea. Muco yeah, exactly, the mucus layer, yeah. So this green layer is synthesized by the uh, intestinal cells, and uh, that saying, good fences make good neighbors, you know, very much applies to the gut. So as long as you have a healthy uh, fence there, um, that helps keep the bacteria uh, separate from the uh, human cells. And um, the main food of our, the, these bacteria is fiber, and that's problematic because our fiber intake has been declining. Um, in our hunter-gatherer phase, on average, we had a minimum of 100 grams of fiber per day. So our gut bacteria evolved over many millions of years with much higher levels of fiber, which dropped to about 35 grams um, more recently. 
And then the average American currently only gets 15 grams of fiber per day. So there's been a 90% reduction in the food for these gut bacteria. And um, what happens when the uh, bacteria stop getting the food they need is that they actually end up eating part of us. They um, are, eat our mucus layer. And they can you know, change to take advantage of that. So this was a study which identified that. On the left, you have a standard healthy microbiome. And so you have the blue um, you know, host cells, and then in green is the uh, mucus. And then on the right, in the inside, the yellow is the fiber. So all the plant products that are being broken down that feed those bacteria. And then the image on the right is a fiber-deficient diet, or um, also MAC, M-A-C's Microbiome Accessible Carbohydrate, which is a plant fiber. So when that's deficient, you see there's no yellow in the, um, the lumen, and the bacteria have started to consume that green mucus layer. So that's gotten a lot thinner compared to the, the one on the left. And then it's much more likely to have that translocation, the intestinal permeability when this occurs. So this comes back to diet. So now we'll discuss uh, rest. And this is something that um, is very important because stress is a key root cause, not only for the initial development of autoimmunity, but also drives flare-ups and exacerbations. And then research has found that stress is involved in the development of multiple autoimmune conditions. Um, but the good news is that addressing stress does improve outcomes. So a study in patients with IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, found that nine weeks of mindfulness training actually changed the expression of genes involved in inflammation, cell growth, revealing that meditation can alter gene expression in autoimmunity. Um, meditation, we'll talk about a bit more later, but also has very powerful brain benefits. Um, and it's striking that just a simple practice with breathing can change the way your genes are expressed and reduce inflammation. So now we're going to move on to part two and talk about implementation. The first step will be to detoxify, improve the liver function. That's one of the key detox organs. And then we'll look at uh, infections, optimizing and healing the gut. Um, the gut microbiome, and also the oral microbiome. So the second biggest bacterial community in the body is in the mouth. And the, a lot of research now about the role of these bacteria in triggering inflammation, contributing not just to you know, gum disease, but heart disease, autoimmune disease. So digestion starts in the mouth and the microbiome there matters as well. And then we'll talk about uh, some uh, strategies with food. And finally, the tools for optimizing rest and managing stress. So we'll go back to Maria, who was struggling with the psoriasis, obesity, and fatty liver. And she had that bacterial overgrowth that we um, talked about. So we used these uh, neem capsules, which are um, kind of a, it's an Ayurvedic uh, herb that helps um, getting rid of potential overgrown bacteria. And then there are certain foods, these uh, red-colored foods that are listed here, that feed the Acromantia bacteria, which is one of the main one, a keystone bacteria that she was very low in. And uh, when she um, did this protocol, then repeat testing, 
two months later found that the that acromancia, the keystone bacteria, had improved quite a lot, and um, her the pseudomonas overgrowth was resolved, and also her short chain fatty acids and butyrate had come up quite a bit, and her intestinal permeability began to normalize. So what she found is that previously ineffective weight loss strategies began to work. And that's something that uh, the research does show that acromancia bacteria seems to play a really big role in maintaining healthy weight. And in uh, people, there was a study which compared people with high levels of acromancia to those with low levels of acromancia. And those with the high levels were much more likely to lose weight on a low calorie diet than the ones with low acromancia. So very important for you know, metabolism, blood sugar, blood pressure, uh, Maria's fatty liver also normalized. And then finally, the psoriasis starting, uh, started to respond to the topical steroids because when we remove the drivers of inflammation and autoimmunity, then the treatments that are anti-inflammatory work a lot better. So what are some strategies for reducing toxin exposure? Um, choosing organic whenever possible is, is good. Filtering your drinking water opening your windows, um, removing shoes indoors, because studies have found that the bottoms of shoes can track in from the outside lead, pesticides, or harmful bacteria, and uh, dusting and vacuuming, because household dust is where some of these toxins accumulate, and then um, choosing electronic receipts whenever possible is good in terms of the BPA that is found in, in most receipts. And there's uh, some very uh, positive data about the power of reducing toxins to have rapid effects. So studies showed that switching to an organic, uh, mostly organic diet, lowered pesticide levels in the urine by 80% in just five days. And then avoiding personal care products with uh, phthalates and parabens lowered levels by almost half in just three days. And uh, hand washing, removing dust in the home, lowered flame retardants. This was a study in children. Uh, but in one week, you know, it reduced the levels by 40%. So these uh, changes do have uh, measurable effects and uh, sometimes can be pretty rapid as well. So we have to remember what I call pre-tox, which is the preconditions to detox. So hydration is very important, drinking plenty of water, daily elimination in terms of a bowel movement, because that's how the body detoxifies, is packaging things into the stool for elimination. And sweating is, uh, is really underutilized. But there's good research that sweating uh, excretes lead, mercury, arsenic, cadmium, pesticides, flame retardants, BPA, phthalates, and PCBs. And these have all been measured in sweat in research. And the study compared sweating in a sauna to sweating induced by exercise and found that sauna use, whether it's uh, infrared or steam um, or any type, led to better excretion in the sweat for multiple toxins. So, of course, exercise is hugely beneficial. Uh, that's strongly recommended. But it's not redundant to exercise and use a sauna because you get slightly different benefits. And then supporting the detox pathways, I like uh, glutathione, which is one of the main antioxidants. And studies show that autoimmune conditions, uh, patients usually have low glutathione levels. <clears throat> There's two forms. One is a uh, liposomal form, which is 
packaged inside a structure called liposome that boosts the absorption. And um, glutathione by itself is not absorbed very well orally, but in the liposomal form, it is. And then also a reduced uh, glutathione was effective at elevating levels of glutathione in the body. Um, daily intake of this uh, supplement was very beneficial. And also as an antioxidant, it led to the reduced markers of oxidative stress. So let's talk about uh, how I like to approach infections. So rather than focusing on the individual microbe or trying to kill the germ like we, we tend to do in Western medicine, the goal is to make your body environment, the terrain, inhospitable to pathogens. One of the ways to do that is actually optimizing the pH, uh, acid-base balance of the intestine, and that limits the growth of over, um, overgrown bacteria or yeast. And the way that the um, pH is stabilized is with short-chain fatty acids, which are produced by the, the gut bacteria. And then to address infections, I like to use uh, antimicrobial spices like uh, garlic, Best way to use garlic is to crush it and then wait for 10 minutes for the allicin to be synthesized. And then after that, it's heat stable, so you can cook with it. Black cumin is um, more known in South Asian cuisine and Ayurveda, but very powerful anti-inflammatory, helpful as an antimicrobial, uh, really beneficial in Hashimoto's, the autoimmune thyroid disease. Um, and then ajwine is a spice that stimulates digestive fire, according to Ayurveda. So uh, if you see in, in the Indian restaurants, they have a small bowl at the register <laughs> that will have ajwine to help. <clears throat> and then turmeric is known for the anti-inflammatory effects, but is a very potent antimicrobial. And um, research shows it has antibacterial, antiviral, and uh, antifungal effects as well. There was a study which proved the anti-inflammatory properties that <clears throat> curcumin was as effective as a drug called diclofenac at reducing pain and disease activity in uh, RA patients. <clears throat> so let's talk about the gut and how to heal the gut microbiome and also the oral microbiome. So remember, <clears throat> we need to address the dysbiosis, leaky gut, and reduced diversity. So the dysbiosis will help with reducing pathogens, addressing infections, then we'll heal the leaky gut. And then uh, to boost the diversity, I emphasize what are called prebiotic foods, which are foods that feed your gut bacteria, and we'll talk about a number of those. <clears throat> and then acidifying the pH in the intestine helps to reverse dysbiosis and boost the beneficial bacteria. So some of the ways to do that are um, bone broth of any type, fermented foods like sauerkraut or kefir or yogurt, and um, prebiotic foods, which we'll talk about. And then potentially supplements like uh, glutamine is an amino acid that is very common. It's been studied in exercise physiology for many decades and has good research at reversing intestinal permeability that's uh, increased. So the way to increase the, those um, short chain fatty acids to then acidify the intestine is a high fiber 
diet with a diverse blend of many different types of plant fibers. And those will be used by the good bacteria to produce these short-chain fatty acids. So here's another example of the interaction between these five causes. So um, in kimchi, uh, do, we, do we have any kimchi fans in the audience? Okay, quite a few. Okay, great, great. Yeah, me, me too. Um, but kimchi, they identified a bacteria called Bacillus pumilus that breaks down a BPA, which is a very ubiquitous toxin, into harmless components. And this um, kimchi not only has all the benefits of the fermented foods in terms of the gut bacteria, but helps with breaking down toxins as well. So it can be helpful in multiple ways. So in terms of um, eating, I, I t I'll talk about the prebiotic foods and then the phase two diet is the long-term diet. So I break it down into the phase one diet, which is more of an elimination diet where you're cutting out inflammatory foods for a couple of months. And then long-term, the phase two diet involves reintroductions and trying to get as diverse as possible. So the phase two diet includes uh, prebiotic foods, fermented foods, and increased plant food diversity because our ancestors evolved eating up to 100 different plant foods in a week, um, just uh, you know, wide variety. And each plant food contains different types of nutrients that each feed different types of bacteria. So diversity in those plants leads to diversity in the microbiome. So I recommend that people aim to eat at least 30 to 40 different plant foods in a week, including all of these uh, healthy foods listed here. And you, we can count them separately. So if you have a, um, you know, say, red apple and a green apple and a golden delicious apple, that would count as three different. Um, if you used a few spices like turmeric, ginger, garlic, ajwain, and black cumin, then that's five foods right there because every spice has different properties. So when you look at it that way, it's not that hard, even though the number seems kind of daunting to try to get up to 30 to 40, but I think it is, it's doable. So this is a table from my book where I've gone through some of the best food sources of prebiotics, uh, especially polyphenols. And uh, among all fruits, the uh, black elderberry was actually the one that had the highest levels of polyphenol, even more so than blueberries. Uh, close behind that was black currant. So I think, um, you know, even though we um, think about blueberries, you know, one of the healthiest, but uh, elderberry is actually higher in that beneficial polyphenols, which is something that is usually the best tolerated foods um, contain these polyphenols when it comes to prebiotic foods. Another example with nuts and seeds. So ground flaxseed is actually the highest source of polyphenols. And uh, surprisingly, chestnut came in second. So we think of it as mostly a holiday food, uh, but um, I think there's a lot of benefits to having chestnuts year-round uh, and then other types of nuts uh, as well. So, um, so polyphenols are one category of prebiotic foods. And here are some of the other categories. There are foods that contain inulin, uh, such as leeks and jicama. Um, and then there is a GOS, which is found in black beans, and also Jerusalem artichoke, which is a um, subtype of artichoke you can find in farmer's markets, typically. 
And then there's resistant starch, so three different types, uh, type 1, type 2, and type 3. So an example of type 1 resistant starch is millet. Uh, also oats are, are a good source. For type 2 resistant starch, plantains or green bananas are, are good. And type 3 is called um, retrograde starch, which involves cooking and then cooling foods. So you can do this with rice, but also potatoes. Cooking and chilling them for at least 12 hours makes this resistant starch that feeds the microbiome. And then finally, we have arabinogalactans, uh, for example, radish and coconut. So I think just getting diversity of these foods is, uh, is highly beneficial. So fermented foods actually uh, have been shown in a study to boost the diversity of the microbiome over six weeks. So um, these adults, when they increase their intake of fermented foods, in six weeks, the blood tests showed reduced inflammation and improved markers of immune system function. Um, this study from Stanford actually measured 19 different markers that were improved, um, and it enhanced the diversity of the microbiome. They just told people to increase of diversity of fermented foods. They didn't say what to eat, so you know they gave examples, but um, eating yogurt, kimchi, sauerkraut, uh, kefir, all of those things. <clears throat> so we'll talk a bit more about rest, and there are um, many tools that are uh, effective and have been shown in the literature to be helpful for stress. So not just meditation, even though we're going to talk a lot about it, but psychotherapy, counseling, biofeedback, uh, guided imagery, mindfulness practice, regular deep breathing, hypnosis, and prayer as well can be a, a powerful tool. So Finding something that appeals to each person and then practicing it regularly is the uh, recommendation. And meditation literally changes the structure of your brain. So in eight weeks of mindfulness um, practice in a mindfulness-based stress reduction class, they found that that increased the gray matter in the hippocampus and the cingulate cortex. And a different study showed expansion of white matter regions as well. So meditation helps both the white matter and the gray matter, the two parts of uh, the brain. And it increases the size of the prefrontal cortex. So um, meditation also shrinks the amygdala, which is the, uh, it's kind of an oversimplification, but you can think of it as the fear center of the brain. And that's one of the ways um, in which it reduces stress reactivity and enhances emotional skillfulness. So um, remember we said that it increased gray matter in the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is what uh, controls stress reactivity and uh, multiple other things, but that's one of the ways that meditation can boost resilience. And also it appears to have a helpful effect for weight loss and inflammation. So. Meditation reduces cortisol, which is one of the stress hormones that is associated with storing fat, uh, increased fat in uh, the abdomen. And C-reactive protein is a marker of inflammation that has been shown to be consistently lower after regular meditation practice. And then finally, there's additional benefits. Meditation improves attention, awareness, um, we talked about the gray and the white matter boosting, and also reduces age-related atrophy. So what happens for normal aging is your brain shrinks, uh, you know, it kind of gets smaller, cells die, but 
meditation practice seemed to really buffer against that and prevent that age-related decline. So it, meditation diminishes the negative impact of aging on the brain. So to review, we're going to uh, focus on detoxification, uh, identifying and eliminating infections, healing the gut and the oral microbiome. One tip about the oral microbiome is that green tea is a very good prebiotic uh, for the oral microbiome. So when you're drinking green tea, if you just swish it around your mouth before you swallow, you'll be benefiting the oral microbiome. And then um, the phase two diet with the plant diversity and incorporating tools for optimizing rest. So what are the next steps after implementing this the, the five-step protocol? So then you can use tools to modulate the immune system and that they'll work a lot better. So for example, fasting. In RA, rheumatoid arthritis, Four studies found that uh, fasting is likely to have a significant benefit reducing inflammation. Same with psoriasis. So 108 people who did a version of um, IF or intermittent fasting where they fasted for 16 or 17 hours a day and ate during the remaining hours um, improved their skin and also inflammation-related markers. Multiple sclerosis as well has some uh, data. So another type of fasting, so there's many different types, uh, is this FMD, fasting mimicking diet. This was developed by Dr. Walter Longo. And uh, this is a way, a five-day program where you're eating low-calorie foods to mimic the benefits of fasting. Um, and, but that was shown to improve quality of life measures and in animal studies has been shown already to help uh, directly with the MS. So what to do if uh, patients are not getting better with all of these things? So there's many other options. There's a low-dose naltrexone, which is a compounded medication that in high doses is used for addictions in conventional medicine. But at a fraction of that, like a 5% dosage, it actually modulates the immune system and reduces inflammation. There's low-level laser light therapy or red light therapy, which is very... Um, powerful for muscle and joint pain. It's uh, anti-inflammatory. Um, the body is magnetic, so pulsed electromagnetic field therapy is also something that is being increasingly studied for the anti-inflammatory immune modulating effects. Um, you do want to look at the gut, so possibly evaluate for SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, and um, investigating hormones or considering other approaches is uh, is good. And so I want to talk about a couple of things that I didn't cover in my book, uh, one of which I think is very important, and that's the racial and ethnic disparities in autoimmunity. Um, so we know that uh, non-white women develop lupus at a younger age, have more serious complications, and die 13 years younger on average. Same holds true with multiple sclerosis. Minority populations tend to have uh, poorer outcomes, and the same in autoimmune hepatitis as well. So it's, uh, it's really um, concerning that there's such a big disparity here. And it, where it might be coming from, in, in addition to the you know, social determinants of health, are certain products. So for example, um, there's different disparities in the root cause uh, exposures. So African-American populations, especially women, uh, might use hair straightening products or skin lightening creams, both of which were found to have high levels of 
toxins. And uh, so this paper where they talked about the environmental injustice of beauty was um, where they highlighted these different exposures. So I think that's something we need to also address, you know, not just for individuals to um, improve their autoimmunity, but in pop at a population level so that we can correct some of these disparities. <clears throat> so um, I also want to talk about mindset. So this is also something I didn't um, go into in the book, but very interesting research about how your beliefs about stress change your physiology and change how you respond during stress. And so we know it's true that stress in excess can be harmful and damaging, but it's equally true that stress can enhance performance and boost focus uh, and energy, boost your productivity. So the difference between these two mindsets, you could say the first is uh, stress is damaging and, and the second is stress is enhancing. And in uh, research where they've actually kind of uh, given people um, educational material along these lines, it's shown that people who, are, who learn about the effects of stress that are positive, the enhancing effects, actually have different physiology during uh, stressful events, less of a cortisol spike and uh, other things. Uh, so your beliefs have a huge impact on the physiology that occurs in your body. So. And then I'm going to wrap up uh, by just discussing some experimental therapies, which are very promising for autoimmune diseases. So stem cells are um, really exciting. There's a, um, well, what they are is um, cells that can differentiate into any type of cell, but also they play a big role in controlling inflammation, helping repair and regenerate damaged tissues. So there was a single stem cell infusion in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, RA, that was treatment refractory, meaning they had tried multiple uh, injectable medicines called biologics that were not helping. But this study from an Australian company found that a single IV infusion led to 10 months of clinical improvement compared to a placebo. So uh, very exciting data on the role of stem cells. I think we'll be seeing more research down the line. Um, um, and then um, here are some other experimental therapies that are being studied. So the BCG vaccine is a vaccine that's been given mostly in developing countries against TB. And because of the role of mycobacteria in uh, autoimmunity, it's being studied. Plus, it has an immune modulating effect. There is also uh, implantable vagus nerve stimulator now, which has very promising research for some autoimmune diseases. The vagus nerve is the uh, main parasympathetic nerve. So just like stress activates the sympathetic, um, the vagus nerve activates the parasympathetic, which quiets inflammation and reduces that stress response. There's a device called the PONS device, um, which is a... Um, FDA-approved device that um, it, ha it basically uses uh, stimulation of the tongue to help uh, in MS helps balance and memory. <clears throat> Finally, there's um, CAR T uh, cells, chimeric antigen 
receptor T cells. Um, I know these have been in the news quite a bit, but has have been, has anyone been hearing about some of the the news? Yes, I see. Yeah. So um, not only for cancers, uh, this is a, this is a type of immunotherapy where the immune cells, in this case T cells, are programmed to have a specific function, whether it be killing cancer cells or targeting autoimmune. Uh, antibodies and reducing inflammation. So all of these are showing a lot of promise in terms of the um, effects on uh, <clears throat> autoimmunity and uh, chronic inflammation. So, um, so in terms of the um, you know f future, I th uh, please stay connected through social media. And uh, um, I also wanted to mention that I included thirty-five or so recipes that my wife and I put together in our kitchen because um, food is medicine. So um, I'll stop here and happy to take any questions. Thank you very much for presenting your program. Mm -hmm. um, my question is this: I've heard and read someplace that um, fermented uh, foods are not good for people have any type of liver disorder. Is that, mm -hmm. could you elaborate more on that if you know more about it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, great uh, question. So I think that that is um, true in kind of the conventional medical thinking that fermented foods, because they have live bacteria, you know, can be harmful. So I think the the case uh, like in liver disease or other um, cases where patients are immunocompromised, where their immune system's not working, then I think what they're saying is, you know, they're concerned that these fermented foods can cause harm by those good bacteria overgrowing. However, that's never been shown in the literature. So I, I don't, even though that's a theoretical concern, I think that, uh, um, data consistently shows that wide variety of people benefit from fermented foods. Um, there are people with a condition called histamine intolerance that uh, cannot tolerate fermented foods at all. And in that case, you can go with the prebiotic foods, which are the foods that feed the microbiome. So there's different options. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. That was really good. Very well put together and really understandable. Um, what kind of lab are you suggesting to suss out the toxicities and bacterial imbalances in the gut and so forth? Yeah. So now we do have companies that can test the microbiome. Um, there's a couple of tests that we use. One is Genova Diagnostics GIFX, and then the other one is called the GI Map. And both of them give a lot of data about the good bacteria, bad bacteria, the microbiome. Um, pathogens, candida, you know, all those things. <clears throat> With toxins, it's a bit harder because uh, um, we have, you know, limited number of blood tests um, and uh, the urine testing that is done in studies is not really available to outside of research. So we don't really have a good way to assess, measure toxins, even though in research settings they can. So I think better strategies just assume that, you know, everyone has to work on detoxification and reducing toxin exposure. So I'm going to, before I pass the microphone, uh, Genova, that's used to be Great Smoky. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, but I remember testing myself just because oh. I test myself for everything so yep. I can learn um, for um, heavy metals. Mm -hmm. That was fascinating. And then did the, um, the natural chelators. Oh, great. Um, that took many weeks. It was an interesting, um, 
you know, e- eating garlic and mixed with yes. whey powder yeah. and mm-hmm. and cilantro smoothie for breakfast was yeah. not my favorite breakfast. But right. um, what about if people want to get as, as maybe a, even a woman, because you mentioned the body burden in, in babies mm-hmm. and to be tested for heavy metals before they get pregnant. I mean, I know it doesn't usually mm-hmm. work that people plan always yes. these things, but yep. uh, where do people get tested for heavy metals or we, are you saying we should just assume we have them and do a protocol? And so, right. Yeah. Um, good question. So I think that, uh, it is possible, um, blood testing for heavy metals measures more, uh, acute short-term exposure and then urine testing can measure more long-term exposure. So that is available through functional medicine, um, practitioners. And then, um, in terms of those foods that you mentioned, yeah, a lot of them, like the garlic, cilantro, chlorella, which is a type of um, um, algae, all have significant detoxification properties. So I think just including them in the diet, even you know, pregnant women can have those foods to help support detox. Hi, Dr. Akhil. Good to see you. Uh, Good to see you. Curious about two things. Uh, you talked about glutathione. Are there yep. natural foods that are high in glutathione? And then mm-hmm. the other thing I was curious about is the things you were saying about mindset and how it relates to sort of the physiological impact of stress. So I'd be curious to hear more about what your view is on a, a positive mindset, a beneficial mindset towards stress. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, so the, I'll start with that. Uh, so in terms of the, um, the mindset, I think, you know, we know beliefs produce our behaviors, but um, this research really shows that beliefs shape your psychology. So I think um, I would encourage, uh, because it's equally true, right? These are both facts. Like stress can be very toxic and damaging. Stress can energize you and enhance productivity. So I think that um, consciously trying to cultivate that stress is enhancing mindset um, has measurable physiological benefits in terms of you know what studies have shown. Uh, teaching people about those concepts and then putting them in stressful situations, measuring their uh, body's response. So... Um, and then with glutathione, yeah, foods, um, there are a couple of foods that raise your, actually there's many, but the two that are very powerful for raising your glutathione levels, one is the whey protein, which is why you'd mentioned whey protein. Yeah, for people who tolerate it, uh, boosts your glutathione. Second is um, beets and beet greens, the leafy tops of the beetroot. That uh, has unique enzymes, so don't throw those away, but those help raise glutathione as well. There are not that many foods that contain it, but they can help your body produce it. Hey, Kiel, thank you for a wonderful talk. Um, So when you talked about the um, mindfulness meditation, Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of your other protocols, you had very specific, like 30 days of this, this many. Mm -hmm. So when I have looked at it, I haven't found the consensus as to mm-hmm. like um, how many minutes a day, yep. what type of mindfulness. Because a lot of times when we're talking to patients, mm-hmm. you know, they're thinking about sitting down and saying "Om" for about an hour, right? Which is not very feasible for most of their schedule. Yes, yes. So if you could talk about some of your findings as to what was the minimum amount and duration that mm-hmm. actually produced the results. Yeah, that's Thank great. You. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, um, yeah, I had a, a patient the other day ask me, you know, what is the minimum effective dose for meditation? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I said, uh, well, we don't know because uh, there's, like you said, a lot of diversity in different studies. But 
I think that with um, meditation, I, a couple of uh, things I find helpful in my practice is one is um, having patients use certain apps like uh, Headspace or Smiling Mind for the guided meditations. And those are often short, three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes. So I usually tell people to start with three minutes a day because even that, um, it's, it's very short, but it starts the process and, and then it can lead to, you know, longer meditation over time. And then, um, there are many people that just don't like meditation. And so in those cases, I talk about all the other tools maybe it's prayer, maybe it's gratitude practices, forgiveness practices, journaling, you know, just finding a way to really tap into that mind body connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you also for a really wonderful lecture, and I'm excited about your book. Um, I wanted to ask, um, I'm a functional medicine physician as well, and um, so I was wondering if any part of what you've explored has the role of mast cells in them, something that I'm, I've been curious about. Oh, great. You're referring to mast cell activation? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think that um, the toxins, I do believe, are uh, key factors in patients with this um, condition. It's called mast cell activation syndrome, where the mast cells are part of the immune system, immune cells that are, uh, in this case, overly stimulated, overactivated. And the same factors tend to drive that, that drive autoimmunity. So infections, we know, are a big cause. Environmental toxins are a big cause. Stress is a big cause. So I do think there's a lot of overlap with those conditions. Yep. Thank you very much for all the research and putting this all together. Um, you mentioned supplements. Mm-hmm. How does the layperson find credible supplements that are consistent? Yes. I understand that's a big, big problem. Yeah, that is a huge problem within the um, supplement industry. So um, one way is if you can talk to your uh, doctor, maybe an integrative medicine doctor who's more knowledgeable about which companies do the third-party testing, the independent testing, you can look for a couple of seals on the supplement labels. One is USP, United States Pharmacopeia, and then NSF is another one that is both of those are third-party companies that uh, offer testing. And then finally, um, I use this website called consumerlab.com. And Consumer Lab, um, they do independent testing of supplements. They will take, they will go to a store and buy, you know, 15 different brands, test them for toxins, test them to see if they really contain what they do or not. Um, I mean, what they're supposed to contain. And they publish all of that. And um, the service is pretty affordable. It's, I think, $30 a year or something. For That's a, a great resource as well. I have a question, and I think that's probably our last question. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering if you could talk about lentils a little bit, because yes. it's in your book. You recommend yep. them for a lot of different reasons, but other people mm-hmm. say you shouldn't have them, or if you have them, you should pressure cook them. Or you sh- mm-hmm. So just yeah. tell us uh, the yes. good and the bad about lentils and right. why there are their people are on one side or the other. Oh, great. Yeah. So I think with lentils uh, and, you know, legumes or beans of any type, I think that the issue that 
people get concerned about is one of them is called lectins, which are certain like anti-nutrients that are found in um, whole grains and legumes. And um, there are certain books out there um, where doctors are, are saying that, you know, lectins are a huge issue for everyone. You should avoid nightshades for that reason, avoid, uh, you know, avoid beans, legumes. I really don't agree with that. I think that the research shows that legumes are universally healthy you know, if you tolerate them. Not everyone does, but um, these strategies like uh, soaking, sprouting, pressure cooking, um, you know, all of those are helpful for improving tolerance. And with the lectins, they're inactivated by cooking. They're broken down. So you would never eat uh, lentils raw or eat uh, black beans raw, right? If you did, yes, then lectins were an issue. But as long as you're cooking it, there's uh, no problem. The lectins are, are broken down. And when they looked at um, the foods that are most associated with longevity, um, beans and legumes were actually at the top of the list um, in, in one study. So. Okay, well, that yeah, was wonderful. Thank you so much, everyone. So um, please join me in thanking Dr. Akil Palasanami for his comments and wonderful program here today. <laughs> we look forward to seeing you all at future events. And this concludes tonight's program and the Commonwealth's Club 120th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.